This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. COVID, under the magnifying glass. Wow, what a month. It seems like a lifetime since our COVID-19 miniseries that was just a month ago. But so much has changed, and yet here we are still sheltering in place. I know. Time is moving fast and slow all at the same time. And I can tell you, Sarah, having three beautifully chaotic kids at our home for the last 92,545 minutes and counting sure has been enlightening. I've learned a few things. I learned that showers aren't as important as I once thought. I learned it takes five times as long to write an email with a three-year-old in your lap. I also learned children somehow know when my webcam is on and therefore time to streak by. I also found out that teachers really should be paid $1 million a year just to begin with. (laughs) I couldn't agree more. (laughs) But that said... We come from a place of privilege, right? We have supportive spouses and comfortable homes and generally healthy kids and a thoughtful department that fought to get us PPE that we needed and prioritized our safety. That is so true, Sarah. For all of my belly aching about the things that I have to do or can't do, I really have it relatively easy. But not all of our patients do. COVID-19 has impacted different people groups differently. In the beginning, COVID-19 was called the Great Equalizer. From Tom Hanks to the Utah Jazz, Rudy Gobert, it seemed that this could hit anyone, that we were all impacted equally. But now we know that's just not true. Sarah, I spoke with Alex Schmaltz. He's a UC Davis third-year emergency medicine resident who volunteered at Elmhurst, which is a hospital in Queens. He shared a little bit about how COVID is impacting the diverse population of Queens. We had one patient who was conscious and could communicate to us through a trach and through gestures. And he was probably about a a 75-year-old man. He lived with his wife and his daughter and their kids um, all in the same house. He spoke Fukanese, which was a sub-dialect of uh, Cantonese. So every day we would go in with with a translator and it was pretty hard to find the Fukanese translator because it's it's a pretty rare language here in in America. And so we'd find the translator and and go and chat with him and and we'd speak through a a series of gestures and he could give us yes and no and uh, could motion to things. And it was was quite an experience because it's like almost like a game of charades with somebody who can't speak and then a game of telephone combined. And, you know, then we talked to his daughter who spoke great English and just the nicest person in the world. And it'd be this this amazing melting pot and amazing just confluence of of everything in New York City. And you'd see this mirrored as you walk down the streets of Queens. I tried to take as many times as I could to walk back to where we were staying. If I could, I would leave at 7 p.m. That way you could kind of walk through these big housing buildings that were were built in the 1920s. Um, you'd see hundreds of people leaning out of their windows, making noise with whatever they could make noise with. And, you know, those pots and pans and vuvuzelas are blasting Frank Sinatra's New York, New York, or 
just playing whatever music it was and it varied from you know 10 feet away it was um, some sort of expression that was very different from what you just heard and then you'd you'd walk through these and then you get you know to the next block and the next block and it's something similar and, and then the houses get a little smaller and it's and it's duplexes and triplexes and you see these families that are are the multi-generational families living in a small two-bedroom of units it was incredibly vibrant to me everybody seemed to know their neighbor and even though they were staying six feet apart they'd love to shoot the breeze with them there's a real sense of community but there's also a real sense of density and it seems like that in many ways that that connectivity that density is is something that coronavirus and covid just it's a catalyst for that and it is a kind of a tinderbox that's that's ready to catch on fire because there's so many people and it's beautiful but it's 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 also it was kind of sad to see that neighborhood be so devastated and so dampened by such a horrible disease Alex you're painting a picture of people being um you know jovial and uh happy and all of this what was the sense that you got from them as a community is there fear is there anger? Is there frustration? What are they what are they feeling and projecting as a community in your experience? I think there's definitely fear. There's probably a fair amount of anger and frustration. We we definitely had some frustration with some of the families that we we were talking to every day. You know, frustration that their lives were put on holds um, and that their loved ones were sick and, and in all likelihood probably going to die that seemed to be a, a very new fear in a lot of ways that people were still adjusting to where people were told they couldn't do the things that they wanted to do because they were now dangerous you know hugs and embraces and handshakes and uh having dinner with uh your neighbors or things like that it, those suddenly became dangerous or in some cases lethal and you wouldn't know and everyone that we were interacting with, you know, had loved ones that were experiencing the the dangerousness of those kind of gestures and, and being social and being with each other. How does speaking a different language than the primary language impact those emotions and their care? I think it adds an extra layer of complexity between all of your interactions that I think, you know, in, in one very important way, it makes it harder for public health messages to spread. I can't imagine it would have been easy to do things in 140 languages in a five mile radius. And, you know, like that one patient that we had who spoke Fukunese, I can't imagine that that message was able to permeate into Fukunese as well. And the, that life saving message of social distancing. So I think that probably took more time and more effort to get that message through. And that time was, was lives. That time was people who were infected. I can't imagine dealing with this as an immigrant or as someone who does not speak English as my primary language. I am consuming news and reading science articles voraciously. So to do this without that access would feel scary, unsettling to say the least. Yeah, I agree. So to further explore the COVID pandemic's impact on our vulnerable populations, I spoke with Dr. Kara Tolls. She's an assistant professor of emergency medicine and the director of equity and inclusion in the Department of Emergency Medicine here at UC Davis. 
how is COVID or the coronavirus as a disease affecting minorities across the United States? And what trends are we seeing nationally? I think the the big picture, and I like to focus on big picture first before moving into the details. So the big picture, bottom line, is that vulnerable populations are getting hit the hardest in terms of the rates of morbidity and mortality across the United States of America, kind of focused in the major urban areas with higher population density like New York, New Orleans, Boston. Uh, But I also want to highlight the Navajo Nation as an area that is getting hit quite hard as well. In the Navajo Nation, there's a report of more cases per capita than all but two United States, being New New York and New Jersey. And talk to us about some of the statistics that we're seeing, some of those details in the United States. Absolutely. I think it's hard to talk about vulnerable populations without uh, really focusing in on the idea that vulnerable populations are diverse and intersectional. So a lot of the times when we think of vulnerable populations, we're thinking of race, um, ethnic minorities, for example, but there are many different social characteristics that a person has that can lead to them being quote unquote vulnerable populations. Some of those that we may think about but may not are tribal affiliation, immigration status, sexual orientation, race, of course, socioeconomic status, physical ability, formal education level, and so on and so so forth. So I think it's an important point to make that vulnerable populations are diverse and that when a person holds identities and multiple of those identities, then it can be this compounding effect in terms of uh, what their life can look like and what disparities and discrimination they're subject to. Another important point about these trends that we're seeing so far, everything with this disease process is, is constantly changing. So these trends are a living, changing sort of thing. And it's important to know that there's, in the beginning of all of this, there was actually a lack of transparency in terms of race data. And there still is in some states, you know, especially looking at those states that aren't reporting race data at all. How would we even know about these disparities if they're not, they're not even being reported? Kind of zeroing in on one of those large urban areas. So New York City, is one of the epicenters of this virus. And this paper found that in the Bronx, which has the highest proportion of racial ethnic minorities, the most people living in poverty, and the lowest levels of educational attainment had higher rates of hospitalization and death related to COVID-19 than the other four boroughs. So that again speaks to this idea of, of someone being intersectionally marginalized and how we're seeing these inequities unfold. Another really important point thinking about this is is that none of this is new. If we look back on, you know, how vulnerable populations have fared during public health emergencies, there is documented literature that shows over and over again that vulnerable populations get hit the hardest uh, when it comes to public health disasters like this. The paper Kara refers to is a research letter in JAMA in April. It's titled Variation in COVID-19 Deaths Across New York City Boroughs. They report the number of patients with COVID-19 who are hospitalized per 100,000 population 
was highest in the Bronx and lowest in Manhattan. The number of deaths related to COVID-19 per 100,000 population was also highest in the Bronx and lowest in Manhattan. Yeah, and these trends are being reported by other sources as well. A Boston Review article from May 1st reported that in Illinois, African-Americans account for 15% of the population, 33% of COVID-19 cases, and 40% of COVID-19 deaths. Then in Georgia, African-Americans account for 37% of the population, but 62% of the COVID deaths. And the Johns Hopkins site that Kara mentioned notes that while Black Americans represent only about 13% of the population in the states that are reporting racial and ethnic information, they account for about 34% of total COVID-19 deaths in those states. And Asian Americans and Latinx Americans also show elevated impact in some regions. What about here in Sacramento? Talk to us about what we're seeing in our local area. So the two zip codes that have been hit the hardest in Sacramento are 95817, which is Oak Park, which is where UC Davis Medical Center is located. And it's also where a historically African-American community is located. As of today, there are 76 confirmed cases in that zip code. And the number one zip code here in Sacramento County is the Rancho Cordova area with 92 cases as of today. There were a couple of assisted living facilities uh, in that Rancho Cordova area and also a church that had uh, a good number of cases as well. Interestingly, and again, I take this with a grain of salt in the caveat that if we are not given the data, then we won't know what trends are emerging. Interestingly, with the numbers that we have right now, there hasn't been a huge disparity in terms of race and ethnicity so in terms of these trends that we that we have seen, maybe in the Navajo Nation, in New York City, in Chicago, and, you know, these other hard-hit areas, why do you think we are seeing these differences in these vulnerable populations? Why are they getting sicker, getting hospitalized more often, dying more frequently? Well, Sarah, I can tell you one thing that I don't think it is and that I, that I haven't seen much credible data supporting, which is this idea of genetics. I can remember in medical school, I'm sure you can too, whereby we were learning about diseases like hypertension or diabetes, and there would be a single line kind of saying something along the lines of, black and brown folks get this disease more often, period. (laughs) (laughs) And I think there was this underlying insinuation that, that there's something inherently defective or maybe it's genetics or something like that. But the truth is it's, it's way more complicated than that. And it's incredibly important to take into account historical and social context. Um, it's incredibly important to understand structural systems of oppression. It is incredibly important to understand the impact of a person holding multiple marginalized identities, as we talked about before. And it's important to, to think about how the social determinants of health play into a person's overall health. What is the environment that this person lives, works, plays, worships, and how does that environment affect the, the person's health? It's important to understand 
all of that context when you're thinking about these disparities. The higher rates of morbidity and mortality have always been there. COVID-19 is just, it's like a magnifying glass, shining a light on disparities that always existed and inequities that always existed, but they're just exacerbated during a disaster. The idea that COVID-19 is a magnifying glass on the inequities that already existed in our country and in our health system really resonates with me. Yeah, and there are several hypotheses as to why COVID impacts some groups more than others. There are existing racial disparities in chronic illnesses like diabetes, hypertension, or obesity that pose higher risk of complicated COVID-19 infections and deaths. And those in vulnerable groups are less likely to have health insurance. Also, there is a higher risk of exposure secondary to overrepresentation in essential jobs like healthcare and transportation, etc., or in low-wage and temporary jobs that don't allow telework or provide paid sick leave. Incarceration, poverty, and housing segregation all impact rates of infections, and lack of access to technology where we all get most of our information less access to education, and lack of trust in healthcare and the government, these all impact how our patients access life-saving information and what they do with that information. To learn more about these issues, I interviewed Dr. Makini Chisholm-Straker. She's an assistant professor of emergency medicine at ICANN School of Medicine. She works clinically at Mount Sinai in Brooklyn, and Makini works with what she calls invisible populations. She wrote a piece titled, COVID-19 is our chance at rebirth. My first question for McKinney is, what exactly are invisible populations? I work with populations that are marginalized and vulnerable by their very existence based on the systems that we have in place um, at present. I realize that I'm most interested in working with these populations that we're not talking about in emergency medicine, um, traditionally hadn't been anyway, but we were best positioned to serve them in healthcare in comparison to everyone else. So, McKinney, you have had a fairly eventful last month and a half, two months now, as we are working our way through the COVID pandemic. Tell me, what is it like on the front lines in New York? You know, I, I do global health work. I have worked in natural disasters and conflict settings. And so what this looks like to me is sort of a luxury disaster for someone like myself of privilege. I still have running water and electricity. I can eat largely the same foods that I'm used to eating. I'm pretty comfortable in this disaster individually as myself. And so because of that, my perspective is a little bit different than I think a lot of my colleagues, which is, of course, yes, this is all terrible and bad, but I'm also thinking about how this is impacting populations that are even more invisible and their invisibility has made them extremely vulnerable now. McKinney, how does COVID impact invisible populations differently? From a clinical perspective, it does seem like the people that I see with the most anxiety that present to the ED specifically looking like this could be a COVID exacerbation. In my population, they're Black. Just to paint a little picture about where I primarily work clinically, most of my patients are white or Russian immigrants. And so the fact that what sticks out in my mind is anxious Black patients is impressive to me because that's not what I would see on a clinical basis day to day, just 
population-wise, um, demographically. And when I think about folks who are anxious, some of them are anxious because of the symptoms they're having. Some of them are anxious because of who they live with, and they know there's nowhere else to go. For some people, including my colleagues, they can say, okay, I live with someone who's in a high-risk population. I'm going to stay in a hotel. There's nowhere for people to go. Or I'm seeing a lot of people of color, in particular, and immigrant populations who are coming in looking for testing, either because they just want to make sure they don't have it, which isn't reassuring for me as a clinician when I know the sensitivity is so low, but also isn't appropriate. Like, I'm not a testing center in the ED. They're not going to get that result the same day. And some folks who are coming in saying their employer won't let them come back to work unless they have clearance. And not being able to work in a country where many people are living paycheck to paycheck is not a safe place to be. Many of our patients in New York City may not be documented. They can't apply for unemployment. If they're experiencing intimate partner violence or domestic violence, where are they supposed to go? We had a shelter patient call the ED back after being discharged, went back to the shelter, and they said, you can't come back without clearance. At the time that this happened, you know, we were still using the Department of Health for our testing, and so that took three to five days to get those results back. Where is my patient supposed to go when they're homeless at baseline? Where do they live for that week? I totally agree. I evaluate children for child abuse and work with survivors of human trafficking. And I think all of us in these fields are concerned that our typical safety net of teachers, community members, and even doctor visits are no longer checking up on our children. There has been a significant drop in calls to social services or CPS. In our area, it's a 40% drop. But I am sure there is not a 40% drop in child abuse. Makini, what are some other ways that the health of our vulnerable populations are being impacted during this time? I think something that is starting to be talked about a little bit more, especially now as at least in New York City, I don't want to jinx us, but I haven't seen volumes this low in years. Like, I don't know where people are. I'm assuming they're home or wherever they live. But we have to remember that in that time, those short few weeks where we were mostly seeing patients with COVID, all the other people didn't stop existing, right? Like we didn't suddenly cure heart attacks. We didn't suddenly cure strokes. So all those people were either staying home and getting better on their own, God willing, or they're dying. And we know that we're seeing excess deaths than we would have at this time of year that are probably attributable to the fact that people were afraid to come to the hospital. I'm certainly seeing people present much later in their DKA, for example, than they would have, they wouldn't have waited four days before. You know, they would have waited two and realized it was all out of hand. And so we think about the fact that all of the people who didn't come to the hospital because they were afraid of COVID were in those vulnerable populations, right? Like we know that people who are most likely to have and have complications from things like diabetes and cardiovascular disease and hypertension are Black and Native and Latinx. And if they're not coming to the ED, where are they going? Their, their clinician's offices are closed. They're dying. And, you know, we have done an awesome job, I think, as a country with telemedicine and accessing people in their homes in a way that I think is going to change emergency medicine forever. But our vulnerable population are probably not the ones that are on their smartphones with great Wi-Fi connection. You know, a lot of the health issues that our vulnerable population struggles with are not something that can be done over telemedicine, and they're probably not accessing it in the same way. What are some of the 
other social impacts that you're thinking about for our more vulnerable populations? How is COVID impacting them on a social standpoint? I mean, I'm sure you've heard, we've all heard that, that quote, um, a system cannot fail those it was never meant to protect. W.B. Du Bois. And outside of the virus itself, when we take ourselves out of the hospital for a minute and think about what it means to socially distance, because you have to, because it's essentially it's mandated, right? Like everything's closed. I am among those who are privileged. My life largely looks the same. But what about my neighbors who work in restaurants that don't do delivery or takeout, so they had to close? They're officially unemployed. What about people who are essential workers? And people sort of think about essential workers as like, oh, the doctors and the nurses and the police. Yeah, yeah, we're essential workers. But so is the lab tech in the hospital. So is housekeeping in the hospital. So is the cafeteria worker in the hospital. They don't get the glory. So are the public bus drivers and the sanitation workers who make it so that we still have a public health system in place, which is what keeps us safe from all the other stuff that's trying to kill us. They still have to go to work, but now schools are closed. And if they are lucky and live in a non-nuclear family and have someone else at home that can take care of those kids, great. But if those people that are taking care of their kids are in that high-risk population, if they're the grandpas and the granduncles and the grandmas and the aunties and kids, you know, they're just little germ mongers. We love them. But, you know, they're going to get sick and pass that on to the people who are the most likely to have bad outcomes from COVID. We think about homeschooling that's now required, right? What about the population that can't do telehealth? In that population, we still have the kids who can't telelearn because there's four kids in a home and there's one computer, maybe. The Wi-Fi isn't great. The folks can't pay for high-speed broadband, I don't know all the fancy terms, internet. <laughs> um, you know. Or we think about people who are learning who are on the spectrum, who have a physical or cognitive or emotional way of learning that would make them not do well in um, academia, in a structured setting. Now, how are they supposed to do that when they're used to getting one-on-one, you know, learning with their IEP or their 504 plan? How are they supposed to do that through a screen now? Um, It's not always possible. The people that are most vulnerable, who are self-starters, who are self-employed, suddenly can't work in some ways. The social distancing that COVID has required because of the way our systems have been built They were built for the privileged, right? When our country was initially built, it was built for land-owning white men. That actually wasn't most of the country at the time, and it's still not. So those systems were built with not most of us in mind. And when we break those systems down, most of us suffer. Yeah, that's a really good point. So, Makini, what can we do about this on an individual level? How can we help recognize this uh, and stay informed and make a change? There's a couple things. I think about us as clinicians and as individuals. I think one thing to think about and to work on, regardless pandemic or not, is to assume and just trust that you have bias because you're a person in a broken system. You grew up in a broken system. You were educated in a broken system. If you're a member of the in-group, you may have less bias, but we have bias. Working in the emergency department, we operate on that bias, right? We make split-second decisions based on putting a little bit of information together, building a box, and then working from there, right? We have to accept that we have a bias. And, you know, you can do the years-long work of trying to unpack that baggage, but it doesn't help the person in front of you. 
So my approach personally has been to assume I have a bias and then think about ways that I would overcome that clinically. I think another way to think about ways to overcome our bias are to engage in media that we wouldn't either ordinarily or that aren't directed or geared towards us that don't seem to include us. Shows that I like that either do or don't include me in the demographic that I think challenge some people's worldviews that I've heard people bring up to me and say, oh my gosh, I never knew that. And that to me, I was like, yeah, but that's so obvious. But that's because I'm in the in-group or that's because I've been studying it for 15 years, right? So shows like Pose or Insecure or Queen Sugar or thinking about shows like Hentified or On My Block or if you like to podcast, All My Relations. Um, it's a podcast by, about, and for Native and Indigenous issues. Um, but of course, it's a podcast anyone could listen. Like just thinking about, okay, that wasn't necessarily targeted to me. And I'm going to get some fun in here too, right? It's entertainment. But thinking about other ways to broaden our paradigms and, and learn. Like you're not going to become an expert, but it just opens your mind to an idea that there are so many ways of being and experiencing and being troubled and being happy in this world. That feels very practical. And, you know, hey, another reason to keep my Netflix subscription or actually, thanks, Dad, for letting me use yours. <laughs> <laughs> but I am interested in making changes in the big picture as well. So I asked Kara about how we can make a big picture impact. This is a problem, a, a deep and complicated and multifactorial problem. And I think that the solutions have to be creative and multifaceted and will take time to get us out of this situation. I think that these solutions involve community partnership. Um, they involve investment, cross-sector collaboration. So that's business, government, schools, banks, and rebuilding of trust with vulnerable communities over time. So this is, a, again, this is a problem that didn't start in a day and will and will take a while to to solve a very very kind of tangible thing you can do on an individual level is find a local nonprofit that's doing work with or for vulnerable communities and support them financially right now we're in in very tough economic times some of us are in in more dire circumstances than others reach out to your friends, family, local nonprofits who are advocating for vulnerable people and um, support them financially during this tough time. It requires meaningful partnership with people and communities to start to chip away at some of these inequities. In terms of government, this is kind of bigger than the individual, but I think it's a very important part of it because it's a very important part of why how we got here in the first place. I think that these solutions involve meaningful investment and policy changes informed by evidence-based equity lens um, across the board in housing, education, jobs, health insurance, etc. Um, an example of that is this racial data transparency that, that um, we both were talking about earlier. And a key thing in these policy changes is representation, people from diverse backgrounds at the table making these decisions or having input on how these decisions are made, and always keeping at the forefront this question, how will this policy impact vulnerable populations? 
an example of how, as healthcare providers, we are educating the local community to begin to undo some of these inequities. So I've actually partnered with um, co-faculty and a few different specialties at UC Davis, along with the Office of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion here at UC Davis Health, along with other community partnerships to participate on a virtual panel that is specifically targeted toward educating the African-American community here in Sacramento about the policy changes and um, COVID-19 health disparities that have arisen. I just attended this panel, and it was a well-done community outreach led by community leaders and physicians. They understand the science and the intricacies of navigating our new world in the middle of a pandemic. It was super practical and something other systems and communities can do as well fairly easily. Just like Alex's story at the beginning, it is super important for our patients of different backgrounds to have this vital, life-saving information delivered in a culturally sensitive way. True life-saving information. I think that it's so easy to get kind of down when you're thinking about how differently people are experiencing this disaster. And it can leave you, especially if you're in a a position of privilege, thinking like, what can I do and how's this all going to end up? But I want to say that I think overall I'm hopeful. And I think that uh, if we are able to pull together in relationship and in community, then we will be able to rise up from this disaster like we have in the past. And hopefully we'll rise up to a more just and, and equitable society if we can incorporate some of these uh, solutions. Pulse check. The current pandemic is a magnifying glass on the many existing health and economic disparities that racial and ethnic minorities in the United States experience. Minorities are less likely to have health insurance and more likely to have underlying health conditions. This puts them at greater risk for negative outcomes if they contract COVID-19. Vulnerable populations are more likely to live in dense urban areas and to have more people living within the household, increasing their risk of exposure to the virus and making it more challenging to isolate sick and at-risk family members. As individuals, we can start by recognizing that we all have implicit bias and get to know other cultures even through simple ways like TV shows or podcasts, just as a start. Big picture, we can start by putting our money where our mouth is and support organizations or individuals in our community who are changing the balance. Just like Carol, we can reach out to our own minority communities, ask them openly how COVID is impacting them and what we can do to help. We need to keep having these conversations, and you know we will. (laughs) So on June 3rd, Alex Schmaltz tells us why the state of California sent him and other doctors to the heart of the pandemic in New York City, what it was like there and what they learned. You won't want to miss his story. In the meantime, rate us and share with your friends. Follow us at EM Pulse Podcast. Thank you to our many colleagues who are engaging in these conversations and making real changes at UC Davis. And thank you to OM Audio Productions for helping to figure this all out with us. 
In the meantime, friends, we are thinking of you and grateful for whatever work you are doing and know that we are all in this together. See you next time. 